Welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week I'm joined by Linda Ealing Lee, Megan Eastman, and Matt Muscardi to discuss the possible merger between Fiat, Chrysler, and Renault. And then we wonder about the implications of Malaysia sending 3,000 tons of contaminated plastic waste back to the U.S., Canada, and Saudi Arabia. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Stay tuned. Two auto industry juggernauts might merge. Fiat Chrysler proposed a merger with French automaker Renault, which would make them the third largest auto company globally. So I want to read a headline that was in The Guardian on Tuesday. It said, France says planned Renault-Fiat merger must protect jobs. Finance minister seeks guarantee no factories were closed before any deal is agreed. The French government can do this, mind you, because they have a 15% stake in Renault, but they have 28% of its voting rights. But the, the, but, the, but the deal is that you have to guarantee that no factories will close forever? <laughs> That's a good question. That's what I was wondering. Is it France only, and is there a time limit? I mean, but is jobs really the question here? Like, uh, like th- so there's a jobs question. Like, will the French government sign off? Yeah, maybe they will. Maybe they won't. Maybe they, you know, they they say like, oh, well, we won't cut jobs for 10 years. It will. But it feels like the underlying question is that, you know, like the reason why they would merge these two, the the a lot of the reporting is around like to so that um, Fiat can effectively get into some of the electric um, and the changing consumer demands, the electric car, some of the innovative space. Right. But it's not like Renault's at the forefront of that. In fact, both companies, according to like our own industry reports, face significant fines potentially, both due to diesel manipulation um, uh, or uh, emissions fines in the EU. It seems like a like I don't know what this solves. Like I'm trying to figure out exactly other than getting big. What is it, What does this solve for? Do we have any sense of that? There's a whole Nissan piece of the equation, which just doing a little bit of reading before this, it, it sounds like Nissan's a little uncertain about this, that they were left out of the discussions until the last minute before the, the um, Fiat Chrysler and Renault CEOs had come to some agreement. And then you've got kind of a shift in the dominant player in the relationship, a shift in the balance of power in the relationship. And then there are, of course, all the governance questions that we've raised, uh, mostly on the Nissan side, but around the partnership there. So I think there's a lot of questions around this deal. So that's actually kind of a really good point. Like my first instinct was to go right to the companies and say, you know, what are they, what are they going to build next? A third largest automaker. But I mean, Megan, you're sort of just pointing out maybe the bigger problem, the which is like who actually owns this company? Look, I mean, I, I think that that one thing that's interesting about this being in the news is that whenever there are these large mergers um, 
and there are very complicated voting rights and ownership related structures where you know you've got Nissan you're not sure what happens to their voting rights or their shares um, you know where where did the different um, shareholders end up in this kind of very complicated merger it's very difficult to, to decipher and this is why I think that we should we, we need something like this uh, control skew. Um, tool, right, to be able to see how far away from one share, one vote this type of a structure um, actually is relative to kind of other types of um, companies that are out there. Oh, uh, you're, you're talking about Alan's, Alan's, uh, Alan's paper uh, on control, ownership and control. Do we know actually where Renault Fiat kind of fits in that? Well, it's better than tech companies, for example, who have management teams that put 20% of their capital on the line but get 60% of the voting control. For Renault, the French government owns 15% but has 28% of its voting rights, but it's no better for Fiat Chrysler, where the Agnelli family owns 29% but controls 44% yeah, see, of its voting that, rights. Like, doesn't even, that doesn't even account for cross-shareholdings and, and you know the fact that Mitsubishi and Nissan and Renault and they all kind of own parts of each other. It's just the level of complexity is is so high. It's just I I it I mean if you're an investor, it, you have to be asking. I mean before you even ask questions about like the synergies of the company and maybe there's a labor problem, you must you you must be asking like what is it that I even. Like, where am I on this totem pole of owners? Yeah, this is, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Like, if you're an investor and you're not the state, you know, you're not the French state, or and you're not Nissan, um, how? What does this do to your uh, voting power or for for the shares that you have? I, I, I do really think that the the cross shareholdings and the various um, structures here in terms of um, uh, shares and voting rights is very, very complicated, and that's why you actually need something to kind of cut through that. Um, and I think right now a lot of investors don't have that um, that kind of quick where do I sit in this deal um, kind of way of being able to, 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 to understand quickly like what their interests are. Malaysia will return 3,000 tons of plastic waste to countries including the U.S., Canada, and Saudi Arabia amid a broadening clampdown on imports of improperly labeled recyclables across Southeast Asia. Here's what Yi Bin Yin, Malaysia's environmental minister, was quoted as saying in the Financial Times. Garbage is traded under the pretext of recycling, she said. Malaysians are forced to suffer poor air quality due to open burning of plastics, which leads to health hazards, polluted rivers, illegal landfills, and a host of other related problems. Linda, Southeast Asia isn't going to take it anymore. We wrote about this in our trends paper, but where do we go from this? I guess one one issue is that... Um and one thing I've just been wondering about, this is so really kind of skyrocketing, right, in terms of the public awareness and, and the consciousness and so forth. But the truth is that um, even if a government wanted to take action today, 
in some of these developed markets. Um, yes, it can re- reduce the, the the waste by putting in plastic bands, uh, single use plastic bands, and things like this. And I, I think that the record um, in other uh, areas that have done this is that it can actually decrease quite dramatically. But the truth is that to build an actual proper infrastructure to deal with all this is going to take time, right? So what happens in the meantime? You know, from a from the, the companies who are the most exposed point of view, because their brand is out there, uh, littering the beaches and, and whatnot. Um, is it going to be the regulations and, and some sort of a, a price and a cost and building this infrastructure um, that's actually going to really change what they do? Or is it going to be consumer, uh, consumer awareness and choice and, and so forth? I don't actually know what that lever is going to be. Um, and I, yeah, I just don't see that there are any kind of quick solutions, or at least even, even with the will, even with political will, I don't think that anything um, very dramatic can change because this sort of thing mm-hmm. takes time. So you've got food and beverage companies that need to do something about their packaging. Some of them have been working on it for a while, and some of them haven't. But there's also, I think, an infrastructure problem, which I don't know. Maybe that presents some business opportunities somewhere. But in terms of the waste management, and I think part of the issue with these plastics showing up labeled as recyclables, but they're not, is that, you know, my understanding is that a lot of plastics are technically recyclable, but then if you start mixing them together in a formula to make your plastic bottle or whatever, that you can't actually separate them back out or that things, um, you can't recycle them into then useful materials. And so people are chucking their plastic bottles into the recycle bin, thinking that they're doing the right thing, and then it's still ending up as trash. So is that going to drive faster change in things like packaging materials? Are we going to see a regulatory solution to this in places like Europe and Canada? Yeah, does it it, it hit the waste management companies, but then also does it hit the companies that are making the plastic? Well, there's also this UN-backed treaty now that says plastic is a hazardous waste. I mean, that must increase the long-term cost of it as a material. And and I think to both yours and Linda's point, there are these companies who are headquartered in Western countries, at least, trading on developed markets where they're, uh, they've had some intense pressure put on them by investors to use more recycled content in their materials or, or to figure out how to cut plastic usage in their operations. And it seems like they've responded to it, at least in their 10Ks, by listing plastic usage as a company risk going forward. And yet, is it just that these companies have relied on a robust global trade to ignore any kind of waste management concerns? They've just been putting the burden on developing countries? Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, we're sending it back to places like Canada. I mean, Canada, we sort of think of typically as being maybe a little bit more environmentally um, aware, but it, in fact, it's just sort of sending out a lot of its, um, its problems that they can't actually solve itself. Yeah, Manila recalled its ambassador to yeah, Ottawa. Yeah, I saw because that. Of this. Amazing, right? Um, and I mean, this... that sounds like wartime action. What? <laughs> <laughs> I shot across the bow. I think it very much is a hidden cost, right? Like, no, no. I think that now it's starting to rise to the level of public awareness of just how much of this stuff was flowing out and to some places that we don't see. Um, and these countries have been have been dealing with this um, this, this overflow um, of the things that, of the trash that the developed countries don't want to deal with, right? So now it's kind of coming back to roost. I think the this um, this is really kind of your classic. Um, externalization of the cost that needs to actually be internalized, I think.
All right, we're out of time. Thanks to Linda, Megan, and Matt for joining me, and thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the ESG Now podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and rate and review us as desired. It always helps. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato. Talk to you next week. Have a good one. So I actually think that's a that's a good place to sort of end it. But I do want to just side note, um, just sidebar for a, a nanosecond. Does the U.S. sign on to anything anymore? I mean, like, <laughs> like the only like it was like the only the notable exception to signing on to plastic as a hazardous waste was the U.S. Of course, it was the the only one who didn't sign on to Paris was the U.S. Because duh, we don't sign on. Do we do anything anymore? Like, is it? And I don't mean that like, it's not it's like it's administration agnostic. We just don't sign anything. What's with that? Nah, we sign drilling permits. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. This this week in dystopia. Easy shot. That's kind of an easy shot. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.